0: Heads bowed down, we we'll
3: here on to sing this old way. Yeah. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If you haven't heard the show before, you know, welcome. Now, if you have heard the show before, you know we we spend a part of the show talking about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount of taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. And in today's world, it's very important to avoid probate. And as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show we talk about, we talk to authors, politics, history, religion. Um, and, and today we have an interesting guest, you know, Samuel Mitchum. Who writes on different subjects, and I got to say this, he, he's different. And he, he's written a book about the end of World War II in Germany, and there are things we can learn about it. And you know, I have some personal connections there. I was stationed in, in the service in Germany in the in the seventies, um, so got to know a lot of German people, a little bit of German history. Um, you know, my father was in Germany at the end of World War II. My mother was born in Germany. So there, there is a, you know, connection there, and, and and it's a weird time in history, and maybe we haven't spent enough time. I mean, the German people were still people, even if they supported Adolf Hitler, and of course, not everybody did. My grandfather was thrown out of Germany because he was said some anti-Hitler things. He did business with the gypsies, so yeah. he's a persona non grata. But it's, it's still, it's it's an interesting concept. It's an interesting book. It's not quite uplifting. It's not something that you're going to say, oh, boy. But Samuel Mitchum is a very dynamic author. He's written 40 books. He's worth listening to, and his perspective is worth listening to. Don't always agree with him, but his perspective is worth listening to. Meanwhile, if you have questions about estate planning and elder law, Michael, where do they send us the questions? Uh, send it to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's Connors spelled C-O-N-N-O-R-S, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. And your your question will probably be heard either on this show. Sometimes if it's too private, we, we don't, you know, answer the questions on the show or on Kevin McCullough's show. And right now we're going to pass it off to Kevin McCullough.
2: All right, Kevin McCullough, glad to have you with us, and every week we like to check in with Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan, the area's leading uh, law firm when it comes to all things elder care and estate law. Uh, Mike Connors is back with us, and Mike, this week's question comes from Joey. He says, my parents are getting up in age, and I want to speak to them about estate planning. How can we prepare now if one day they need to go into a nursing home? They have various properties and assets. Uh, that's the question, Mike Connors.
3: Yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, it depends on their health and their ages and so forth and what the, I mean, nobody knows what the future is going to hold, but at least project a little bit. But ordinarily, we would like to do a trust, irrevocable trust, which is kind of like a partnership between the parents and the children that starts protecting the assets from medical bills right away. We're going to have a look back period for home care, Medicaid in a few months. It'll be 30 months and then. Nursing homes, it's five years. If we sign the documents in March, April's month number one, and we're at four years and 11 months. So usually we're always better off getting the clock started. So talk about irrevocable trust agreements with them to save their assets from medical bills, nursing home bills.
2: All right. And the time to get started, as Mike indicated, is now. So call 718 238 6500. Don't delay. Get your questions answered and get your processes underway. Uh, in order to take the best advantage of the time. 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, uh, locations in five uh, different spots across the uh, boroughs. And let me uh, just remind you that Mike will answer more questions uh, every week, of course, here at Kevin McCullough on uh, this uh, station, but also with his own broadcast, Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570 and FM 102.3, The Mission, WMCA, and Sunday mornings starting at 11 on AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if
0: I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings? Our home? What's the best way
4: to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of grandpa?
0: These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, tax and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected.
3: I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now.
0: I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors & Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or Connors & Sullivan
1: speak With me right now, I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888 943 2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com/Fmelia. Once again, call 888 943 2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Milia,
0: NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503.
3: You can hear Kevin McCullough Monday through Friday on these stations. If you listen to WMCA, The Mission, you can hear Kevin 3 o'clock Monday through Friday. If you listen to 970, The Answer, you can hear Kevin McCullough 7 p.m. Monday through Friday, and he's got an extra hour during the week with uh, John Katzmatidis on Wednesdays. Now, again, Michael, what's the email? Que- where do we email a question right now? If you want to get it, send us a question to either be answered by us privately or to hear read on air, you can email us at us at askmikeconnors at gmail dot com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail dot com. Okay. Now. My wife Beth just joined us and Beth you have a question from the email what is it
5: Um it's about someone's mother My mother has a home in New York she's moving to California to live with family Can she use an attorney in California to create a trust for her New York home or does she need to use a New York attorney
3: Well you know, the answer is, it, it, uh, yes, obviously you can use a California, I shouldn't say obviously, but obviously you can use a California attorney to set up the trust, and you can deed the house in New York into that trust. Uh, on, you don't technically need an attorney to draw up a deed in New York, but I'll tell you something, the the system is so complicated, especially if you live in New York City, the system is too complicated would be very hard for anybody who's not an attorney practicing in real estate in New York to do a deed transfer you know and, and this is one of the, the things occasionally like you know you have these legal zoom or other computerized estate planning documents and they say oh just take the deed to the county clerk well you live in New York good luck I mean, it's extremely difficult to record a deed in New York City if you're not used to it. You're not tied into the computer programs that record the deed. Um, it's it's not a simple thing to to record a deed in New York City. There are five, six tax papers you have to file, and if you're not used to it, it's very difficult. But yes, you can use a California attorney and deed the property in New York into the trust. You can use a new york trust and deed california property into the trust um california's community property states i'd be very careful i'd check with somebody in california if you did that but you, you know ordinarily you don't need an attorney licensed in the state to transfer a deed into a trust i mean we do of course in a lot of states you don't even use attorneys at closings like pennsylvania and florida in some cases even new jersey you don't have to be an attorney to transfer a deed in those states now one of the the different states is maryland if you record a deed in maryland you need a maryland licensed attorney to review the deed before it gets recorded um most states you don't nebraska has some strange rules but basically english common law all well 48 49 states follow english what happens
0: common. in louisiana well, what happens in louisiana
3: louisiana is a little different it's you can't do everything in Louisiana that you can do in the other 49 states because their law is derived from the Napoleonic Code as opposed to English common law. But the 49 states, English common law, the laws are pretty much the same. And the same goes true, you know, like any uh, country whose laws are descended from from England, you know, Canada, Ireland, um, the United Kingdom, obviously, a lot of the Caribbean countries that, you know, like Jamaica and things like that, Barbados, it follows English common law, but Louisiana is slightly different. And if you're going to be transferring property in Louisiana, then I would definitely get an attorney who's admitted in Louisiana to to do those papers. But to do it, you don't need an attorney in New York to record a deed. However, the papers are so complicated if you haven't done them before. I would strongly suggest that you use a New York attorney to record a deed. You know, in New York, it's just it's just not that simple. The forms are complicated. There are tax forms, questions on there, and again, it's if you've done it a hundred times, it's not that complicated. But at the same time, if you're doing it for the first time and you're staring at tax forms and they're asking you questions, if you don't know the answer to the questions, it you know could take you a little bit of a hassle. But you know, and and again, you don't even need an attorney to do a trust agreement. But things get messed up. I've I've seen people literally with. 30 million dollar estates don't want to pay for an attorney to do a trust agreement or an LLC and something like that and then somebody passes away and we got really negative tax consequences. So, we don't want to pay money in taxes. You don't want to save a $1,000 and cost yourself $500,000 in taxes. And I've literally seen that happen. So, if you are get get the right advice, get you know, if, if Community property state in California, I might get advice from an attorney there. I would probably, in this case, if it's New York property, I would probably do a trust in New York and deed the property in New York. That's not that you have to do it. It's just the advice of the way I would, you know, the way I would do it. And, and again, if you have any of these questions, please give us a call at Connors and Sullivan at seven one eight two three eight. 6500, 718-238-6500. Now, as we mentioned before, we're going to be talking to Dr. Samuel Mitchum, who's got a different take on a lot of issues in history, and he's going to be talking about the decline of the Third Reich, the end of the Third Reich in World War II and how its impact affected the German people at that time.
4: We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death, and it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wing Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org.
0: Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike.
3: Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With us right now is an esteemed guest, Dr. Samuel Mitchum, who we talked about the Civil War in a couple of his books. It wasn't about slavery and about the draft riots in New York City during the Civil War, but now we're going to World War II. Welcome to the show, Doctor.
5: Well, thank you very much. Always a pleasure.
3: Now, what's what's the name of your your latest book?
5: Um, The Death of Hitler's War Machine. Uh, It's about Nazi Germany, nineteen forty-five, and the uh, fall of the uh, Third Reich, the end of the uh, German armed forces.
3: So, you're dealing primarily just with nineteen forty-five, or any any time before that?
5: Um, uh, primarily. Uh, 1945, uh, uh, when everything was uh, falling apart for Hitler and the Third Reich.
3: So, let me ask you something. What was it like to be part of the German government in 1945? I mean, you're seeing your whole world collapse.
5: Um, It really depends on whether you were uh, rational or not. Uh, there was a lot of self-delusion going on in the higher echelons of the Third Reich. Uh, they didn't want to believe that everything was going to fall apart like it did. And um, there was a lot of difference in the East and the West, too. Um, in the West, uh, you, um, the German soldier uh, could reasonably expect to be uh, um, taken prisoner and treated decently. And uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, rape and murder going on like was happening in the East. So uh, it was, in a sense, it was like two different wars.
3: All right. Now, let's say for the sake of argument, when do you think the German high command felt the war was over?
5: Um, well, uh, it depends, again, on the individual. Uh, the uh, commander-in-chief of the high command was Phil uh, Anderson uh, Wilhelm Keitel, who was later hanged at Nuremberg. He wanted to believe that uh, the war would uh, could be won simply by uh, will, willpower, because that's what Hitler was preaching, and he was lockstep with the Führer. Uh, others, um, less so. Uh, Yodel I think uh, uh, Colonel General Four Star General uh, He also convinced himself There was a chance uh, Like I so, said there was a lot of self delusion um, Others you had uh, the commander Of the Army Group Vestula On the Eastern Front uh, His name was uh, Heinrichi He was uh, more realistic He was a brilliant uh, commander uh, Practicing Catholic uh and actually believed in it. And he um, um, he wanted to save as many civilians as possible and uh, as many soldiers. And uh, Berlin, the Battle of Berlin, uh, was more a contested mop-up operation. Uh, uh, he, he, uh, Heinrich retreated, but he sent his 3rd Panzer Army north of Berlin, and his Ninth Army south of Berlin, and uh, only left a few uh, divisions in the city, and they fought pretty tenaciously. But it wasn't like he had an entire Panzer Army in in the city. Um, it was, like um, I say, it was pretty brutal. Uh, four out of every ten women in Berlin was raped, and had well over a hundred thousand cases of venereal disease, and. Um uh, the city was, of course, already devastated by the Allied uh, bombing attacks. So um, it was pretty miserable to be in Nazi Germany in
3: 1945. Let me ask you uh, something. The casualties, sure. the Battle of Berlin, when the war's really essentially over, what was it like? How many casualties were suffered during that, that time?
5: Well, uh, it's kind of hard to tell. It was well over 10,000. Um, I differ uh, uh, a little bit from some historians and um, uh, my estimation of how much the Hitler youth was worth. Uh, they um, you know it's, it's um, the politically correct thing to say that it uh, was sacrificing children and it was, except uh, those children had teeth. Uh, You know, uh, they were mostly—they were pretty much all boys, and uh, they, boys are fond of exploring. And they had gone through the sewage and sewage lines, and they knew what to do, and how to get around underneath the streets. And they had been issued uh, Panzerfausts, which was a single-shot, disposable, shoulder-fired anti-tank weapon, and they would uh, go in those sewer uh, sewage lines. Uh, get behind the Russian tanks where the armors finished and fire at close range with these anti-tank weapons. And they destroyed 700 Russian tanks in Berlin, which is uh, more than enough to equip an entire tank army. Um, so um, they were surprisingly effective, I thought. Uh, Stalin figured it would take three or four days. Uh, it 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 took almost three weeks to, to to get the city.
3: What was it like being a civilian in Berlin back then? Before well, the war and after. Nice. I mean, during the war and after. I should say.
5: Um, during the war, it was. um you had uh, a lot of bombing going on. You did that throughout Germany. In fact, uh, eighty-five to ninety percent of all the buildings in the cities were destroyed. Uh, they had a uh, some grim humor. They, uh, they used to joke if the Americans continue their bombing, they're going to have to start bringing their own targets because there's anything left here. And uh, but uh, on the other hand, they also said uh, it's easier to believe in final victory than to run around Germany without your head. And. There was some truth there. Defeatism was punishable by summer execution. Uh, So they they tried to uh, act like they believed that Germany was going to win and they tried to convince themselves that Germany had a chance, but they never did. Um, It was um, pretty brutal there. I had a friend who. uh, so she didn't get to eat a piece of candy for six years during and after the war uh after the war it was uh a lot of famine before the uh they divided Berlin and uh um, West Berlin actually got to eat um, they, um, you know, they even included sawdust in their meals um to give themselves bulk, uh, it was uh, you know, a pretty horrible place to be. Just honestly.
3: Now, but, when you say about hope, was you know you hear about the wonder weapons? Did people really believe back then? Uh, especially higher up, you go in the command.
5: Well, the higher ups should have known better, but uh, uh, yeah, they um, a lot of them did believe in the wonder weapons. Uh, Because some of them had actually come out, the V-1, the V-2, the new model U-boats, the jet airplane, uh, um, but uh, never in sufficient uh, numbers to make a difference. Um, But um, uh, the possibility of an atomic bomb, that was never a realistic thing. Um, The German development of the bomb was flawed and... um, uh, the heavy water experiments were were flawed, but um yeah, a lot of people did believe that uh, one German uh, soldier they caught and interrogated uh, uh he, he told the American interrogators about the v three and uh, the objective of the v three was to sink the united kingdom sink England the island uh uh, the lower ranks uh, you know, were more susceptible to the propaganda but uh, um, some people who should have known better uh convinced themselves that they would uh be rescued but you've seen people yourself who engage in self-delusion as uh not just uh nazi germany characteristic uh, uh, uh many people uh delude themselves about various things.
3: How did the infrastructure survive or what was there to survive at the very end of the war and after? What about the police department, the fire department, the hospitals and school administrations? What was going on toward the end of the war and then shortly after the war?
5: Well, um, the uh, police were incorporated into the military. Um, The uh, school ceased to function altogether. All the boys, uh, uh, they they were sent to, they became flak helpers. They sent them to the flak guns. And the theory was uh, they could go to the flak guns and the teachers would uh, uh, come and, and educate them. But what actually happened uh, most of the time is um, the uh, flak helpers would give their uh, sergeants uh Deer, whatever. <laughs> and when the teacher showed up, the uh, sergeants would call an air raid. Um, so uh, education basically ceased. Uh, hospitals continued. And uh, frankly, he did a heroic job, but um, uh, they didn't have much to work with anymore. I mean, they uh, toward the end, the... Uh, bandages were made out of paper because the textile industry completely collapsed the leather industry completely collapsed uh, children didn't even have shoes in fact i had a friend who was in east prussia in uh, 1945 she was a little girl her daddy had been killed on the eastern front and her mother wanted to get her away from the russians uh, but uh, she didn't have any shoes. I mean, you and I as adults, if our shoes were worn out, we'd make them last a little longer, maybe have them repaired. But uh, kids' feet grow so darn fast. Uh, that wasn't an option. So what her mother did was jumped, uh, dipped her feet in cow manure and let it harden and did it again and again and again. And she had cow patty shoes. Now, it was zero degrees uh, was your average temperature in East Prussia in 1945. Uh, this little girl walked across East Prussia, the Danzig Corridor, across Pomerania, and halfway across Brandenburg in her cow paddy shoes. And she never had the slightest health problem as a result. <laughs> so they were, they were pretty innovative. But um, if you've got to use Kalmanier for your child's shoes, uh, things are pretty rough.
3: Now, the statistics you had about rapes in Berlin, where did you get that from?
5: Oh, uh, from um, your uh, German documents, uh, the estimates uh, after the war, um, yeah, that's—it uh, could have been from Cornelius Ryan, uh, Battle of Berlin. Um, I don't have a footnote in front of me. Okay. But— um, yeah, they were uh they were pretty rough on the uh the women. Uh not just in Berlin, everywhere the Russians went. Uh even Yugoslavia, which was supposedly a Russian ally. Uh, they had a lot of uh, uh incidents. A lot of the Russians were from Asia, the in uh, 1940, uh, they they weren't well educated, and uh, Russian uh, Soviet propaganda said take the German women as your lawful booty uh, as a way to break their racial pride. You know Hitler and his whole Aryan Superman type philosophy. Um, that's, they figured that's one way to break it, and uh, uh, that's what they taught the uh, lower ranks. and and it resulted um, in a lot of uh, rapes, and a lot of women were killed after they were raped. Uh, It was, uh, like I say, you didn't want to be in the East. In fact, that's part of my book. Uh, The uh, East Prussia had a population of about 3 million. It was probably the hardest hit of the German provinces. And... uh, it in Pomerania, more than uh, what was it, two million twenty-two thousand people were evacuated by the German Navy, and they were so uh, uh, insistent on getting away from the Russians that uh, they would line up to get on a ship, and uh, the Russian fighter bombers would attack. They wouldn't. Uh, they wouldn't take cover because if they did, they would lose their place in line, and. Uh, on you know, some of these ships, I talk about the Wilhelm Gustloff. I've got a couple of witnesses who were on that. That was uh, the greatest maritime disaster in history. Uh, five times as many people were killed on the Wilhelm Gustloff as were killed on the Titanic. Uh, it was a strength of joy cruise ship uh, rated for 1,800 people, passengers, and crew. Uh, they put over 10500 People on that ship. And it was torpedoed 25 miles offshore in the Baltic, where the temperature was below zero degrees Fahrenheit, and sank in 45 minutes. And there uh, weren't anywhere close to enough lifeboats. And uh, over uh, uh, 8,500 people died, uh, mostly drowned. A lot of them died of hypothermia. Uh, It was more people killed there than were killed on the Titanic, the Lusitania, the Andrea Doria, and the Princess of Ireland sea disasters combined. And that didn't bother the refugees at all. They continued to line up and try to get on ships. I mean. lost the Goya, it had 3,000 people, 300 of them got out it sank seven minutes and that wiped out the uh, 35th uh, Panzer Regiment, which was the tank regiment of the 4th Panzer Division Uh, the most highly decorated uh, unit in uh, Wehrmacht according to how you measure uh, decorations, but it had more of the Knights Crosses than anybody else Uh. It was
3: uh, kind of a mess. Let me ask you something: the the Western Front. Are there what were the statistics? Whether you use Cologne or, or Bavaria or Frankfurt, what were the statistics? You know there about you know the American Army, the British soldiers, whatever. Was, was there any similarity at all?
5: Uh, no, there wasn't. Uh, once we. Uh, captured the bridge at Remagen, German morale collapsed altogether. It wasn't that the Remagen bridgehead was uh, uh, so significant from the military point of view, but from the psychological point of view, it was devastating for the Germans. Right after that, we had our greatest victory. We surrounded the uh, Ruhr pocket and captured over 300,000 Germans, and our total casualties were 17,000. Mostly wounded who recovered. Uh, so that was, uh, uh, that was when you were having your mass surrenders. Um, the um, Americans developed an interesting technique. They'd take a village and uh, go to the uh, mayor's office and uh, find out the phone number of the uh, burgomaster in the next village or the next town or the next city. And they'd call him on the telephone and tell him, this is the Americans. We're 10 miles away. Uh, uh, send your votes from home. And uh, we won't have to destroy your town. And most of the time they actually did it. They, uh, you know, give well, us 15 minutes. We'll have everybody home. And they, uh, and they did. And the Americans would come in and, uh, uh, if there were any German soldiers around, they would do what uh, what they called the double Hitler salute. You know, that's when you raise both hands in the air. Ah. And uh, uh, we took village and town and city after city that same way. Which, um, like I say, the, the, in, the, in the West, they could afford to collapse, and they did. But in the East, it was a different story altogether.
3: Now, what happened to the German prisoners of war taken by the Russians?
5: Uh, Many of them never saw the light of day again. Um, A lot of them were worked to death. It really depended on your rank. Uh, The generals were treated reasonably well. Field grade officers uh, were treated so badly. The privates were often worked to death. Uh Stalingrad's a great example. They surrounded, it was over 200,000 men at Stalingrad when it was surrounded. Over 90,000 survived. Uh, and uh, 12 years later, they finally released the prisoners. There were only 6,000 left alive. And uh, that was fairly typical. Uh, they would put them in camps where, all uh, uh, they marched St- Stalingrad uh, people to. Siberia. It took them six months to get there, and they were often attacked on the road by uh, uh, Russians or Soviet citizens who now hated the Germans, and some of them were murdered. Uh, it, was, uh, it was bad for the... Um, being captured on the Eastern Front was a bad thing. Uh, on the Western Front... Uh, Uh, Some of them did die unnecessarily, but uh, uh, that was largely because we weren't prepared to take that many prisoners that quickly, and uh, there was some starvation in in the early uh, aftermath of the war, but... um, uh, Generally speaking, the uh, German captured in West would be put to work in America or Great Britain, and uh, would get to go home in a year or two. In Russia, uh, no. Uh, in fact, it was 1955 before most of these men were released. Um, man they have Konrad Adenauer, the german chancellor to think of that they were uh, to thank for that they uh, uh, had a negotiation uh the united states was going to recognize east germany uh soviet union was going to recognize uh, west germany they were all ready to sign the uh the treaties i'm i'm talking a day or two away and uh, chancellor Adenauer said by the way if the German prisoners are not returned, I will not sign. (laughs) And um, he got his way. Uh, Not a recommended way to do negotiations, but it certainly worked for him. They released all the prisoners, including their generals.
3: You know, you just mentioned a name that I think has almost been forgotten by history today, Conrad Adenauer. Who was he?
5: He was the chancellor of Germany, West Germany, uh, in the nineteen fifties. Uh, he was a statesman. He uh, he helped bring Germany back, but uh, I think Germany would have come back anyway because of the character of the German people. Uh, they uh, probably uh, if you don't say anything about uh, good about the Germans. You got to uh, admit. They're the cleanest people in the world.
3: (laughs) I spent three uh, years in Germany in the in the U.S. Army, so I agree with you.
5: (laughs) uh, Okay, well, uh, it's just a characteristic. Even in the nineteen twenties, when we were having our, uh, you know, the Great Depression, I should say nineteen thirties, we had our Hoovervilles. They were a mess, and uh, the Americans going to Germany would see the same thing, but they were astonished. Because it, it was everything was clean. <laughs> I, uh, I guess it's a national characteristic, and, and not a bad one either.:
3: No, let me ask you something. The, the German high Command and, and or we can go even offices or whatever, did they have any remorse or guilt? I mean, obviously some of them did. But what was the general overreaction? Were they just sorry they lost or were they, did they have true remorse for what they brought onto the world?
5: Um, I think uh, of course it all varies from individual to individual I think there was a lot of remorse Um, a lot of them didn't realize how big it uh, uh, how big it was I mean like uh, if you're a a German private uh, on the Eastern Front your war is a hundred yards wide and if you're commanding a German division, uh, uh, your war is about six miles wide. Uh, they didn't uh, see the big picture. Uh, matter of fact, there's an interesting book out. It was based on uh, comments by German POWs uh, that were picked up. They were generals, and they put them in uh, a general's camp. Uh, but they bugged their rooms so they could hear what they were saying. And, um, some of them didn't even believe there was a Holocaust, uh, months after the war. They thought the films were doctored and, um, you know, this didn't really happen. Uh, you
3: talk about Wehrmacht general officers.
5: Yes, I am. I okay. am. One of them was, uh, uh Hans Eberbach commanded the fifth, uh, army in uh, Normandy. He, uh, Uh, he had to be convinced after the war that there even was a Holocaust Um, because, you know, his focus was purely on the front. Uh, He didn't have any idea what was going on in the rear areas or on the home front. He was a little bit too busy uh, dealing with Montgomery and Eisenhower. Um, and they uh, had one lady I remember uh, she was very highly thought of very sweet woman and um, they showed her the films of the concentration camps and um, uh, she said the Fuhrer could not possibly have known uh, but he did uh, there were others uh remember one so the young ladies were laughing at it. They thought it was purely a propaganda film. The Americans would come in and after the war, they'd make everybody in a village look at a film of the show in the concentration camps and the extermination camps, the gas ovens. And uh, uh, these made uh, some of the girls, uh, a couple of them, uh, view the film again. Because they were laughing in the first one, because they thought this was all made up. Um, it took a while before it really, the horror of it really sunk into the German civilians. I think. Well,
3: so uh, what about the, let's say, or do you know what about the people that live near Dachau? I mean, that's that's not in some far off place. That's in the middle of Bavaria.
5: Yeah. Um, well, it was that was a more concentration camp than an extermination camp. There is a distinction. Uh, it, they did some extermination there late later, but uh, uh, they didn't know what went on behind the barbed wire, uh, and I don't think they wanted to know. Um, they uh, couldn't do anything to stop it. And uh, they just sort of turned their backs on it. They didn't. Uh, they didn't want to believe. I mean, even after the war, you may have experienced this yourself in Germany. Um, the uh, the veterans would talk to you uh, because they. Uh, when I was there in the seventies, for example, they didn't have any young people. Uh, the one that would listen to their war stories, Mm -hmm. the way the next generation dealt with it, uh, was, uh, if dad was going to talk or granddad was going to talk about the war, uh, they would politely excuse themselves. Now this is my father's generation has nothing to do with me. And they didn't want to hear it. And, uh, Mm um, say they politely leave the room. Um, I guess
3: that's one way to deal with it. Yeah, well, it's it's in some respects, it seemed like World War II almost didn't happen when you were over there. You know, it, it wasn't spoken of. It wasn't discussed. I guess politeness, I don't know, by our part. And they they didn't want to talk about it. You know, my, my generation didn't want to talk about it.
5: Ah, well, I went over there to research it. Uh, and... I found them very receptive to talking uh, to me because I was young and they didn't have anybody else to tell their war stories to, Uh, you know, the little veterans group, they all heard them. Um, But, you know, here's a kid who's interested. Let's talk. And they would. And sometimes they'd tell you more than you wanted to know. Hmm. Let me ask you, why did you do this book? Oh uh well I this that's been on the back burner for a while. I did this book uh I guess one of my motivations primarily was uh, I went to the National Archives once and I was looking for something very specific uh in Washington DC and I went to a they send me back where they don't allow the general public and there was a big bay office there and there was only one guy in it. He was going through the filing cabinet. And his back was to me, and I didn't want to just yell, "Hey you!" Um, so I shouted out, "Can't you find it?" And he was kind of startled. He turned. No, I can. I asked him, "What are you looking for?" And he said, um, "Hitler's uh, last will and testament." And I said, "Is that here?" And he said, oh, "No, I'm looking for a copy. The original. We have one of the four originals, and it's in the vault. Nobody gets to see that." And anyway, he asked my name and he had all, I'd written five or six books by that point. And he, uh, he by the asked, way, how many books
3: have got, you written to date? I think the audience should know 40, that 40, what? Roughly 40, 40. Okay. Uh,
5: not, not real sure, but somewhere around there. Um, we stopped counting at 40, but, um, <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we had a bull session, a bunch of other people came in and, uh, that lasted about an hour anyway. Gerhard uh, left, and he came back, and he had gone to the vault and checked out the actual original copy of Hitler's last will and testament. Uh, exquisite paper, leather, uh, leather bound. It, it was nice. But he told me to open it up, close my eyes, put my nose to the paper, and smell it. And I did that. And the odor of the Fuhrer bunker had permeated that paper you could still smell it the smoke, the dampness uh, the darkness uh, almost the desperation you 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 could sense it just for a second, I had the sensation that it was nineteen forty five and I was in the Fuhrer bunker and um I raised my head from that uh, paper, looked at Georg, and I said. Wow, and he said exactly. Uh, and you know, ever since that happened, I wanted to write, uh, research that, and write it. And um, I did. It was a it was a very surreal moment.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, blast from the past type of thing. But um, yeah. how many people survived the bunker? Do you have any idea?
5: Um. A lot of them did. You know, everybody that signed Hitler's uh, last will and testament was dead within uh, seventy-two hours. But some of the big wigs got out. Um, some, of, one of them was lucky, Helmuth Moska, who lost uh, a leg, uh, a foot uh, in the Balkans. Commanded the first SS Panzer Division. the legs to out and Adolf Hitler in uh, Normandy. The Russians captured him, and he was lucky because the Canadians were looking for him, and they were going to try and execute him because he shot a bunch of Canadian POWs in Normandy. Um, He was the only man I ever met who uh, was fortunate uh, to to be captured by the Russians. Uh, Most to the others, uh, some of them got away... uh, uh, most of them were captured and ended up in a Russian prison. And uh, uh I think most of them actually survived, but it was uh, it was a tough ten years for. Them. Yeah. All
3: right, the name of the book, The Death of Hitler's War Machine, the author uh, Samuel Mitchum. Now I guess you can find this wherever books are sold.
5: Uh yeah. Yeah, Amazon, Regary History, Barnes and Noble. Any bookstore will either have it or be able to order it for you.
3: Yeah, I just want to let everybody know, take a look at the Regnery website every once in a while. The same people who own Regnery own this radio station. And, you know, there's there's some great books out there that, you know, if you're still reading, want to learn something about history. It's a very good source. But, Dr. Mitchum, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner.
5: Well, I always enjoy it, Michael. Okay. Uh, Thank you for having
3: me. Thank you. Again, thanks again to Dr. Mitchum. Again, he has a different perspective. It's interesting. Again, this guy is, is one of the most knowledgeable historians in the world. He's written 40 books on history. We've had him talking about the Civil War more than a few times. And, of course, his perspective is always a little different. And, again, it's not exactly like we had an uplifting show today, but it is still part of history, and we shouldn't forget any part of history. Um Michael, again, if you can, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time on estate planning and elder law. If you can tell them where, if, if you're interested in estate planning, where you can get our, uh, get our seminars? Absolutely. Um, if you want to re- see one of our online seminars, of course, we can't have them in person these days, then it would be you want to go to YouTube.com and search Connors & Sullivan Video Seminar. It should pop right up. Just YouTube.com, hit the search bar, and search for Connors & Sullivan Video Seminar. And you should see Dad right there. Okay, now, you know, we're going to be back next week, and and all of you know I love history, so we're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about black history. It is Black History Month, and we're going to resurrect one of our interviews that we did with Ed Bars about the the Buffalo Soldiers, which is, you know, I always remember that great movie with John Ford and Woody Strode uh, about Sergeant Rutledge, and we're also going to be talking about... um, Deacon, St- Deacon Sivers again about the first African American Catholic priest in the U.S. So stay tuned. We haven't forgotten history. We're going to spend more time on history over the next few weeks. Um Rush Limbaugh, rest in peace.
2: Hi, Kevin McCullough, are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law,
0: PLLC.